If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. We'll continue with another song, which happens to be Psalm 54. Sometimes, perhaps, we do forget that these are songs. This is the songbook, the hymn book of Israel in many ways. And Psalm 54 is one of these precious declarations of what we can expect from our great God. If, if you were to be asked, what is your most earnest desire, what would you say? I pause because I'm letting you think about it. And what would be your response about your most earnest desire if, especially, you were running for your life? I would imagine that you would immediately cry out for help and protection. I know I would. I would be most natural in any kind of response like that because I would plead with God Almighty Himself, the all-powerful one who created the world and everything in it, to look down from heaven and to set his eyes directly upon my plight so as to rescue me from the hand of my enemy. And let's say that you yourself were looking for his eyes to be set on you for help. You would naturally then want to set your eyes upon him And you would be waiting eagerly for his immediate move toward you. And of course, that's really from a physical vantage point so very true, but it's also and certainly must be true from a spiritual vantage point, that we want God to set his eyes upon us to meet our needs, to take care of us, to protect us whatever disastrous circumstances we may have, calling out to him, and that is what David is doing here in Psalm 54. He's asking God to help him, to come to his aid. And there's a specific context, and... We'll get to that in a moment. The reason I say that there's this opportunity for God to set his eyes upon us and for us to set our eyes upon him because, as we'll see in a moment, that's a declaration in this very psalm itself. We are called upon to set our eyes upon him. We are as true believers of Jesus Christ, all about thanking God and praising God every day, counting it a privilege to reach out to Him in good times and bad, seeing His goodness in all the small things as well as the great things. We who are followers of the one true God, almost as though it might be for us an involuntary action on our part to acknowledge God's presence in everything because he's, he's here. He's here with us tonight. He's everywhere. He's everywhere present. 
We love God, and we assume that He wants us to repeatedly call out to Him for all things, large and small. And if you were running for your life, that would be pretty large. But He also wants us to do it when things are still and silent and serene and calm. He wants us to call out to Him. Such is the devotion to our Savior, knowing that He providentially works everything out for our good and His glory, down even to, those, to the most minute details of our existence. And certainly, when the troubles and storms of life are seemingly at their zenith point, we will definitely plead for our God for His aid and for His deliverance. It's the, it's the natural response of the hurting Christian. It's, it's a reflex action where we're asking God for help because he, he knows our plight, He sees our trouble, and we most naturally are looking to Him as the deliverer. We know our resources are short, we know our power is limited, and we're asking God constantly to help us, to come to our aid, to deliver us. As you well know, I trust, before David became king of Israel, in what seemed to be constant pleadings for him, with him, by him, for his God to protect him and deliver him from his enemy. And frankly, beloved, often, so very sadly, the person who was chasing after him was King Saul. And David is crying out once again to his God in Psalm 54, because Saul is at it again. What's so very interesting to me, tragically so, is that Saul is the king of whom? Israel. David is an Israelite. David is in the line of this Benjamite, and David should be the last person that Saul should be pursuing. Any Israelite should be the last person another Israelite is pursuing, right? And yet, here's where we find ourselves from the perspective of Psalm 54. In the Hebrew text of this passage, verse 1 is this, to the choir master with stringed instruments a maskel, a kind of musical term, a maskel of David, and then notice this superscription, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now, in several of these psalms, we don't have a superscription that tells us exactly what the background is. With this one, we do. And so, with my introduction that I've just given you, I can say with authority that the background for David's thoughts in Psalm 54 is because he's running for his life because Saul is out to kill him. And for us, we should read 1 Samuel 23. So if you'll take your Bibles and go back to 1 Samuel 23 so that we can get the facts, the history of what was going on here. This is what we believe is the background 
for the mention in that superscription about the Ziphites and about Saul and his army. And we look to the story, the historical sketch of what truly is going on in 1 Samuel chapter 23. I wish we had time, very honestly, to read uh, the entire chapter and to explain all of the historical details and sketch out uh, who the Ziphites were and uh, why it appears as though uh, David is where he is and what Saul is thinking. You get a flavor of this, and we can't read it all, but we can pick up the narrative in 1 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph. Now you know where the Ziphites derive their name. The wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, and of course we know the relationship between David and Jonathan, right? They are closer to each other than than most two humans can possibly be as friends, right? Totally committed to each other. And yet, Jonathan knows that his own father, Saul, is maniacally trying to wipe out his best friend, and he's caught in the vortex of trying to be loyal to his father and yet also maintain his commitments to his best friend. That's a hard thing. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. I love that phrase. That's uh, probably something we could use as a phrase when we seek to encourage each other. Let me strengthen your hand in God. And he said to him, did Jonathan, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Now, of course, we soon realized that, that it was not to be in the providence of God. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us? And by the way, that's the exact phraseology here in the superscription of Psalm 54. Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakaliah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. They think they're just about ready to capture this wretched David, at least in their eyes. Verse 21, and Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Now that is a sadistic comment in the context, isn't it? Go, make yet more sure. In other words, if we really true have him, we have got to make sure we get him this time. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides. In other words, check every nook and every cranny and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now, 
David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jessamon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land And I presume in the providence of God, you know why. David shall be king of Israel. And God sends the Philistines to divert Saul from what he wants to do to David, catch him and kill him. Verse 28, so Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape or the Rock of Divisions. Divisions being David went on one side of the mountain and Saul and his army went on the other side of the mountains. I think there's even some poetic justice there. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. What a fascinatingly and excruciatingly sad story. And it was happening to David time after time after time. All right, so now you know the background of what David was going through. And now let's read Psalm 54 in order to see what David was thinking. O God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies." It seems to me that there are three main sections of this particular psalm in which David, I suppose we could say, is modeling for all of us how to approach our Creator God, His Creator God, in times of great trouble and affliction. That's why I love these psalms. I was at a conference uh, this weekend. Some of you were there. It was a conference called Speaking by Listening. You speak to others, you communicate, you teach, you disciple, you disseminate the Word, and you do so by listening, that is, listening to the biblical text. What do you find there when you're listening to the text? Well, you find a bountiful source of not just information, but of nourishment about how to live. And when we were in our discussion tables, 
the question was asked, what is your favorite Old Testament book and what is your favorite New Testament book? And just as soon as I was about to answer the question, they said, and you can't say the Psalms. And I immediately went, oh. And then I thought, you know, every time I preach through an Old Testament book, that and the latest of long lines of books is my favorite. So I would have to say that Psalms are my favorite right now. Well, because I couldn't use the Psalms as my answer, I said, well, for me, it definitely has to be the Proverbs. It took me nine years to preach through the Proverbs verse by verse. I didn't do it every Sunday night. I did it every other Sunday night. So it was really just maybe about five years or so. But it was a crucial time when our children were growing up and I needed those Proverbs for my parenting, shall we say. If, in fact, the superscription is right, and we believe it is, and if, in fact, Psalm 54 are David's thoughts about the historical record of 1 Samuel 23, then it seems to me that God is giving, through David, for Israel, a song to sing about three ways of setting your eyes upon God. How does he do it? Here's the first one in verses 1, 2, and 3. I'll use this outline point. Set God before your eyes in trust. Set God before your eyes in trust. I think the overall meaning of verses 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 54 is David's faith. David's faith. That's where we're going to start. We start with David where we absolutely should. He's praying to his God in faith. He cries out to the Lord God for help against the attacks of the enemy, Saul and his men, the very king of his own country. But I want you to notice precisely how he does so. Look at verse 1 with me. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. David really is calling out to his God, and it may not look like something that immediately conjures up faith in your mind, but if you really think about it, prayer at its very essence, is crying out to God in faith, by faith, because you can't see Him. Did we not read this morning in 1 Peter? Though you do not see Him, you what? You love Him. How can you love someone you've never seen, and because you've never seen, presumably you've never met? Well, I'm not talking about uh, some kind of internet dating site. I'm talking about a God who is there and who is not silent. God has proved himself over and over and over again in delivering David from his enemies. And when it's happening again, and perhaps when he might assume that the enemy has him in his sights, It's a time to pray, but more than that, it's a time to pray in faith. Sometimes all of us, myself included, 
we shoot up quick prayers asking for decisive action and maybe faith is not attendant with it. We might be in trouble, but when faith is coupled with prayer, something very, very important happens. And this is what David is saying. Notice, oh God, save me by your name. What does he mean by that? Well, the idea of the name of God is merely a description of all that he is. It's a quick and easy reference. It's a shorthand term. You can't say, Lord, I want you to know that I recognize you as the all-powerful one, the omnipresent one, and you start going through all of his attributes. By the time you're finished with all the attributes of God, your time is run out. So what you do and what the Hebrews did was they called upon the name of God, the name which would be representative of all of his character. It's a quick way of saying, especially when you're running, when you're running away from your enemy, it's a quick way of saying, oh God, save me by your name. I can almost see it now. David has uh, taken that uh, skirt that they were wearing, even as men, and he was drawing it up, as they say, and he was running as fast as he possibly could, and I can hear him saying, oh God, save me by your name. He's calling out to God, and he's doing it with a prayer in, through, with, and by faith that God would answer him in a moment. And perhaps the answer came, curiously so, by the Philistines. And then he says, does David, and vindicate me by your might. And I think because of the physicality of the moment, no wonder he talks about the attribute of God being his might, right? I need you. I'm not sure that myself and my mighty men are going to be able to overtake Israel and their army, including King Saul. Maybe this is it. Maybe I'm done. You say, no, 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 no. See, David already knows that he's going to be king of Israel. Did, do you think that that ever made him slack? Do you think he thought to himself, why am I running? I'm going to be king of Israel. Saul could come right up to me and smite me on the face, and I would laugh in his. No. You see, in the Bible, there are these two running concurrent themes, and they are these. God is sovereign, and you better do what you're told. And when you do what you're told, you watch the unfolding of God's sovereignty. And so what does he say? I need you with your vast attributes, your, your name, as it were, to save me. That means deliver me, and I want you to do this. I want you to vindicate me. That means show that what Saul is doing with his army is actually wrong and sinful and wicked. That's what the word vindicate means. Declare me, David, to be in the right and show Saul to be in the wrong. Frustrate his, pl his plans, Lord. Bring his wickedness to a wretched end. 
Vindicate me. And how does he do it? By your might. By your power. This is a, this is a time in the history of the world in which there was gross violence. And someone at that time would just as soon kill you as look at you. And David knows this, and so he says, I have to have a power that's greater than my own. And the only way, my friends, you can do that is to set God before your eyes in trust, in faith, asking God for things, asking Him to help you. Vindicate me through your mighty power. Declare me to be in the right Saul. He's guilty of wanting to destroy an innocent man. God, help me. I want you to show yourself strong and mighty and keep your covenant promise because I'm the one in the right and Saul's the one in the wrong. This takes trust. This takes faith. And it's true about us in the Christian life, isn't it? Dare not to do great exploits for the sake of the kingdom thinking that you can put Satan out of business with a pea shooter. It takes great faith. It takes a robust faith to live our Christianity out before a watching world in these days. Verse 2, here's more faith that is expressed. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. I dare say David cannot utter such a thing unless he believes that God could do it. Why why do you think David could even utter such a prayer if he didn't think it was possible? If there was no faith involved in this, this is a joke. This is an exercise in futility. It really doesn't matter. And you know, for those who live functionally as agnostics or atheists, that's precisely what they think about prayer. It's a waste of time. I could do something else right now. I could uh, do a million things, but I'm certainly not going to pray because it means nothing, it does nothing, and it achieves nothing. David doesn't think that way at all. His prayer isn't merely uttered out of sheer terror and fright. It's uttered in faith that God can and with David's confident expectation that God will deliver him. Is that your kind of faith? God can. God will. You say, deliver me from my my plight physically? Perhaps not, if that's not in God's plan. But he shall do so in eternity. There's a continuity between this life and the life to come. This is not all there is. Um, A deliverance from God out of my financial crisis, uh, out of my uh, relationships that have gone sour because I've stood up for Christ. Whatever it is, whatever the situation, in faith, praying, inquiring of the Lord about His deliverance at the hands of whatever enemies you face is just plain old the right thing to do. It's the righteous thing to do. And this kind of communication, it has to be carried out by faith. You know, all of these psalms, we're going through them one by one by one by one. 
And one of the ringing themes of all of these psalms, somewhere, somehow, is something regarding the necessity of our faith. That's how we live. We probably don't talk enough about faith. We certainly do exalt, and we've even done it tonight in our singing, about grace. But remember, it's God's grace through faith. And it's through faith that God will answer our prayers. Now, maybe sometimes He won't answer our prayers in the way that we assume or the way that we think, but it is true that faith is absolutely required. David is not uttering these prayers in verses 1 and 2 without faith. I suspect for us, this is the kind of faith that is required, and you and I know where I'm going. Hebrews 11, and here's what it says. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. I think David's in that list. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Why? Because he did it in faith. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Do you see the corollaries here? Faith, 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 commending ourselves to God, being pleasing to God. And then verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists or believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. The intensity of it, he rewards those who diligently seek him. And the rest of Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. This is what David's doing here. He's setting his eyes before his God, in trust. Why? Why? Verse 3. For, here's the explanation, for, I'm going to tell you why, for strangers have risen against me. You say, strangers? Wait a minute, that's a term that's actually used for foreigners, which means non-Israelites. Well, it's a strange use of the word strangers, But it's in there, and I suspect it's in there because they're acting like strangers. Saul and his army, they're acting like foreigners. They're acting like they're not true Hebrews because they're attacking a fellow Hebrew and his mighty men. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. And then this phrase, folks, whenever you read a section of Scripture, find something that appears to you to be the very focus, the very pinnacle, the very most important point of such a reading, and I suspect in this psalm it is this, they do not set God before themselves. Boy, mark that phrase. Underline it. Circle it. 
right 14 exclamation points behind it. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is this. Christians set God before their eyes. He matters to us. And for non-Christians, unbelievers, strangers, and ruthless men, they do not set God before themselves. Who is Israel's God? Peter quotes them, the cynic. Who is this God? Everything happens just as it always does. The mocker, the scorner, the scoffer, the fool of Proverbs, whoever they are, here's the one common truth that stands at the top. They do not set God before themselves, before their eyes, before their gaze. They don't notice Him because they don't want to. Everything about them is right before their eyes that they can control, that they think they can vanquish. And so regarding David's enemies, including King Saul himself, David writes, they do not set God before themselves. Isn't that a very clear and compelling reason to assume that Saul didn't know the Lord? He didn't set God before his own eyes. I mean, a lot of people have asked me in Bible teaching through the years, do you think Saul was saved? Uh, What about Samson? And what about that guy that seemed to be good at times and then terrible at other times, that Solomon fellow and all his immorality? Had hundreds of wives. You know, maybe the answer is find someone who in the pattern of their life, not perfection, but certainly by way of the direction of their life, sets God before their eyes. They have what we might call divine accountability. You know God is watching. You know what He thinks. You know what His commands are. You know what obedience looks like. You know what growing faith is supposed to be like. And apparently, in 1 Samuel 23, Saul knows nothing of only his sadistic opportunity to put David out of commission. Why? So he can remain king. His eyes are only upon himself. And therefore, this entire psalm is a testament to David's desire to trust God in the worst of circumstances by setting his eyes by faith in a fixed position, casting his trusting gaze upon the Lord of glory. You have to do that when you're running for your life. So I ask you the question that we ask at the very beginning. What's your most sincere desire? Well, when you're running for your life, you are calling out for God. But in the lean times or in the good times, here's what's true in addition to that. I always want to set God in my gaze. Set Him before my eyes. And I do that by trusting. Trusting God. Listen to Colossians 3. Verse 1, set your mind on things that are above, where Christ is. Maybe 
setting your mind on where Christ is is the New Testament equivalent to Psalm 54's phrase, they did not set God before themselves. Set God in your uppermost gaze. Or Hebrews 11, all the great cloud of witnesses. By faith, by faith, by faith. Maybe we could say it this way. What it means to live by faith is setting God before your eyes. So let me ask you straightforwardly. Do you ask in faith for your Savior and your Deliverer, Jesus Christ, to take up your cause, or do you try to take matters into your own feeble hands? I've done it a thousand times myself. Try to fix things, make things better, work around them, shave the corners, don't deal with all the hard stuff, just uh, try to hurdle over everything, uh, making sure that possibly everything else will be better. You know, if you cry out to the Lord, He's the one that will save. He's the one that will deliver, and you've got to do it in trust. There's a second outline point in verses 4 and 5, and it's this. Not only do we set God before our eyes in trust, we set God before our eyes in truth. Trust and truth. Look at verse 4. David moves seamlessly now in this psalm from a focus now on the trust of praying to God, offering for God's help in faith to be delivered. And in verse 4, he changes it now, in my judgment, to truth. Look at verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Listen to the confidence of the man. I know this is my God. This is the truth of who he is. What's the truth of who he is? That he's my helper. You say, well, that, that sounds like faith. Well, it is faith, but it's faith and confidence in what I know to be true. It's not airy-fairy faith. It's not saying, look, I'm going to ask in faith for a million dollars. No, I'm going to ask in faith that God would be so kind to allow me just enough to pay all my bills. Because... Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, my necessities, all these things will what? Will be added to you. You offer a prayer in faith because the one to whom you're praying is the one who is the God of truth. And what is it about this God that is true? That if I seek him, he'll take care of me. This is what David says. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Do you see it? In faith, David speaks to the truth of God's character when he proclaims that God is his helper. God is the upholder of his life. He believes by faith, in faith, to pick up those principles of verses 1, 2, and 3, that the truth about his God is that God will help him, God will give him sustaining grace, and it's rooted in God's character And not only this, verse 5, he will return, David says about his God. Listen to the truth of this. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Guess what? That's the Hebrew word for truth. In your truth, put an end to them. Now, that's where 
those concurrent themes of sovereignty and responsibility are going. He knows he's destined to become king of Israel. He knows that. It's been prophesied. God himself has given him that assurance. But does that make him slack in his prayers? Does that make him weak in his faith? No, it actually revs up the juices of such faith that gives David the opportunity to proclaim to his fellow Israelites that God is the God of truth. God will do what he says. God has promised. He's got a covenant. He will not go back on his promise. And that's what you and I do when we go to our God and we say things like this. Lord, I don't know what your plan is, but here's what I want for our church. I want people to love each other. I want people to be unified. I want people to be growing in their faith. I want them to evangelize others who are in their sphere of influence. I want them to be servants of one another. I want them to see this corporate gathering of ourselves, including our corporate prayer, to be that which grows them in their knowledge of our Lord and Savior. I want this. I want that. I want a hundred more things. And I know we'll have them. How do I know such a thing? Because God has promised that this is the way he builds his church. This is what God does. This is... This is his vocation. This is the business he's in, growing his church, maturing his saints, bringing them to full maturity, making them like Christ. Now, I don't know all the twists and turns that's going to bring all of us to those points of maturity, but I know this, we're going to get there. Faithful is he who has called you, and he will bring it to pass. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it, mature it, perfect it, bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. God's promised. I stand on his promises because I stand on the truth of his word. So you set God before your eyes in trust, and you set God before your eyes in truth. He will return the evil to my enemies. He is faithful to put an end to them. And what do we learn from 1 Samuel 23? What do we learn? David escapes. And what do we learn after that? As the narrative goes on and the history of Israel shows, Saul was defeated and his kingdom was ripped from him and David ascended to the throne. Even if he had to spend some time in Hebron before he gets to Jerusalem. And God did Everything he'd promised. That's why in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, you read it tonight, verses 14 to 21, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who mistreat you. Don't take a vigilanteism onto yourself. Let God be the one who requites for his own namesake. Read it, Romans 12, 14 to 21, it's all there. Do not return evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. In the new covenant age, we don't have to worry about wicked kings. We don't have to go after someone. We pray and we allow the vengeance of God to do in his time and in his way what he's going to do. Because the truth of the word of God is that he will do what he said he will do. We trust him for that. Third, and finally tonight, 
set God before your eyes not only in trust, not only in truth, but thirdly, in triumph. In triumph. Verse 6, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. You know what he's doing? David is speaking triumphantly about corporate worship. He's saying, I will, I will bring a free will offering. I'm going to bring a sacrifice of praise. I'm going to give thanks to your name. He's talking about being with God's people. And you know what strikes me about why this is so wonderful? David is going into the house of the Lord to worship with God's people, and that means he's still alive. He's still breathing. He's here. God has been true and faithful to his covenant. David has trusted his God, and now God brings the triumph. You've got to celebrate that. And that's why the New Testament over and over and over again says, trust God by faith, trust his powerful, truthful word, and when you do, you shall see triumph. And when you do, you better be thankful. Be thankful with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. Give of your thanks. Be a thankful person. We talked this morning about joy and rejoicing and how often Paul was speaking of such a thing. It may be that Paul actually even speaks much more about being thankful. He's been called in some circles the apostle of thanksgiving. He's always thanking God. And why might he be the one to do that? Because he knew what a rotten scoundrel of a sinner he was. He persecuted Christians. He was complicit in some of their deaths. And now David is saying, when I look at the landscape of my life, I've trusted God, I've prayed, He's answered, I believe in His truth, He's made good on His truth, and now we get to celebrate And so we go into his house and we make free will offerings. We offer sacrifices to him. We give thanks to his name. Why? Because even the name itself, Lord, Yahweh, it's a good name. It's a good name. Verse 7, for he has delivered me from a few of my troubles. Is that what it says? Every trouble? Every single one of them? Boy, it sure doesn't seem like it at times. Lord, are you sure? I think David is so sure that he might even tie. Remember that phrase, they do not set God before themselves? They do not set God before their eyes? Perhaps this is why David says in the very last line of this psalm, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. God has done it. My eyes have even seen it. Perhaps David is looking from his side of the mountain and he sees Saul and his army running away to go after the Philistines. And he's now saying to himself, I trust this God because he's a God of truth and he's also a God of triumph. I love these psalms. Thank you for letting me preach them to you. Let's bow together in prayer.
our Heavenly Father. These are the psalms that give ballast to our rocky boats. These are the psalms that give poetic and grateful description to our faith, our trust. There's a real man named David. There was a real pursuer named Saul. And far beyond the players on that mountain that day, there's a real God who sees everything in our lives. And if we trust Him by faith and exalt the truth about who He is, however it turns out, we shall see His triumph over our foes. We should affirm our Lord Jesus, the truth of Hebrews 12, 15, through Him then, through Jesus Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Lord, as we think of our corporate prayer time tonight, we ask that You would keep us, our focus, our gaze, our intense looking, into your face. Just as the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, before the face of God. May we keep setting you, God, before ourselves, our circumstances, our lives. We don't want to be like those who don't set you, Lord God, before themselves. We do. You've called us to do so and we must and we will by faith, in trust, through truth, for triumph. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.